and welcome to episode 33 of Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media. Our previous episode was with Dean Oliver, one of the pioneers of basketball analytics, now an assistant with the Washington Wizards. And on this show, we'll talk with someone who's been at the forefront of football analytics for over a decade, Brian Burke, who made his name in the analytics space by publishing research and analysis on advancednflstats.com, later renamed advancedfootballanalytics.com. And now he's a senior analytics specialist at ESPN. Last week, Brian and the ESPN analytics team unveiled metrics called run block win rate and run stop win rate, which measure the effectiveness of line play in the run game. I think it's a pretty impressive way to look at how well linemen are stopping the run or blocking for the run. And I encourage everyone to read the ESPN.com articles Brian and the team have written about these metrics. We'll have links to those in our show notes. In this episode, Brian and I will dive into previous metrics he's developed at ESPN, Go deep on the process of building the models for run block win rate and run stop win rate. Challenges he and the team faced in creating these metrics. How he knows when to stop tinkering with new metrics and let them loose. The excitement of releasing something like this into the wild. The headline story of the metric, which was that Aaron Donald, perhaps the NFL's best defensive player, rated out as average against the run. What's next on the analytics horizon? What a typical Sunday looks like for Brian, his path from being a Navy fighter pilot to the sports analytics world, a favorite Army-Navy moment, and how he nerded it up to break a Navy war game. After that, True Media's Albert Larcata will join me to discuss creating new metrics and to wrap things up. Now, without further ado, here's the expected value conversation with ESPN senior analytics specialist, Brian Burke. Joined now on Expected Value by Brian Burke, ESPN Senior Analytics Specialist, who's here to explain why he hates Aaron Donald and thinks he's the worst player in the NFL. Brian, what do you have to say for yourself? Yeah, and he uh, he stole my girlfriend back in high school <laughs> and uh, <laughs> finally getting him back. So, Revenge of the nerds, right? Yeah. <laughs> but seriously, Brian is here to talk about the new metrics he and the ESPN analytics team developed to measure the effectiveness of line play in the run game. Uh, run block win rate from the offensive perspective, run stop win rate from the defensive perspective. Brian, before we dive into the nitty gritty of developing these metrics and what you learned, let, let me take a couple steps back. So two years ago, you and the analytics team published metrics to measure pass block and pass rush performance for pass rushers, offensive linemen. Let's start there. And what did you learn from that? What sort of feedback did you get from that project? That was really a serendipitous project. So it started because we started getting requests from researchers and other people like who, who was the nearest defender to a, a receiver, you know, for certain plays. Yeah. So we'd have to dig into the, the tracking data, the, the X's and Y's of the next gen stats data and kind of, oh, he, he, this, this player was closest, this player was closest. And I'm like, you know what, this is, this is not a lot of fun. I'm going to just automate <laughs> this. So for every play, we know who the, who the closest player is to every other player in every play and just automate that. So I don't have to deal with this anymore. And then I started noticing that we would animate the plays and animate who's closer to who with these line segments. I thought, wow, this is, this is actually identifying every block uh, for the most part. And I said, wow, that, that alone is really interesting. Now we know who's blocking whom on every play. And that'll, you know, if you don't do any analysis on top of that, that's, you can do a lot with that. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, in pass plays especially, it's really easy to tell using the tracking data when somebody's won the block. They're just simply closer to the quarterback than, than the person blocking them. So 
that's that's an oversimplification of how the, how the model works but that was it was just serendipitous and it we decided to roll it out and it, it got a lot of attention a lot of attention and teams were reaching out for for all kinds of details and um it really really worked out well it's well accepted um and so naturally the thought was okay well, let's do an analog to do the run do the run play and um but the running game is super complicated uh, mm-hmm. So much more complicated than than pass blocking that that it took a lot of time, it took a lot of research to be able to do it. Yeah. So what goes into that process? Or where do you start? I mean, you have you mentioned the NGS data, the NFL. That's the tracking data with chips and the pads and whatnot that you have. Where yeah. do you start trying to put this new run blocking model together? The way it works, we don't have like a we don't have a training set of data. Like we don't have a library of charted plays where an evaluator said this is this player beat his block or this player did well on the play and this player didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the first step was to research, be able to do that ourselves. And it took over a year of just research, just reading, talking to people, uh, learning about the running game, watching film. And so it, the first step was really just to educate myself um, to, to be able to be able to tell the difference and you know what's effective in the running game, what's not effective in the running game. And then once kind of armed with that, we, we kind of started with the building blocks from the past metrics we had. So we, we could still identify the blocks in the same way with slightly different parameters because the running game is, is so fast and fairly chaotic. Um, so we just tweaked some of those parameters to get the kind of who's blocking whom model. And then we it, it was really a, a trial and error process. So it's a rule-based system. It's since we didn't have training data, there's there's nothing to train a, like a machine learning model on. So it was a right. big giant. It basically became a human decision tree, where we'd say, okay, let I would lay build like tons of different features uh, involving you know angles and distances and uh, closure rates and, and all kinds of things, and then started using those features to be able to to kind of isolate you know what combination of these features are you know, at certain values or in certain ranges when someone wins the block. And I would apply that to a play. We would animate the play. And so you'd watch the dots. And when, when a defender would win his block, we would, you know, paint him dark red or whatever in, in the animation. And you'd say, okay, well, I, I'd, I'd like this to happen when, in this set of conditions, right? It makes more sense if, if I tune this parameter down or tune this parameter up. And it was you know, a, a thousand iteration process. And we watched, I mean, literally a thousand plays, probably there's six, seven, eight, nine blocks in the box on every play. So multiply that out. And, uh, you know, at, at the end, we were, we were really satisfied. Um, it's not going to be as good as the pass win rates. It's, the pass win rates, if you look at a play and it says, hey, this, this guy won that play, we're really confident that, that an evaluator would probably say the same thing. Mm-hmm. The, this is not going to be as exact. Um, but it's in aggregate, it's going to work out really well. And what we're really gratified by is that it really measures effectiveness. It's not, it's not tricked by technique or some sort of, you know, checklist criteria. You you really have to be effective against the run, not just sort of, you know, look good against the run. So, um, that's, so that was the goal is to get it to a place where we could measure its effectiveness and make sure it was working well. 
you've talked through a lot there, including some of the challenges that you faced. What other than, I mean, starting from scratch basically is obviously the ultimate thing. What were some of the other difficult things you ran into over the course of putting this together? Let's see. Well, there's no training data. <laughs> that was, that was right. a big one. Um, the, the running game, it's the, the chaos of the running game and understanding the running game was just the, the biggest hurdle. Um, once you understand that, you know, the math involved and the geometry, I had to go back to um, kind of high school level physics, you know, uh-huh. or, or undergrad physics and, you know, velocity vectors and dot products and um, all kinds of fun stuff like that, arc tangents and all, the, all that great stuff to, to be able to do this. So that, that, was, that was kind of a, a learning challenge and be able to code that. Um, we had to make it efficient and fast enough to be able to, to use, um, you know, we wanted to use this live so we can support Monday night football, but yeah, mostly it's the chaos. So, you know, the, these run plays, the, the, the passes aren't what you, like my, my high school days, we would, we would practice blocking against these blocking sleds where you're kind of pushing against the sled and, you know, all the way down the field or you know, these blocks were more like kind of four, four second long kind of shoving matches, just sort of like this tug of war back and forth across the trench. Mm-hmm. But in the pros, the, the running game is really just a series of like really quick hits, just, just quick, quick collisions. Uh, and the blocks are super complicated too. Most of them or many of them are these combination blocks where it's sort of this hybrid double team, single team. And uh, to be able to kind of parse all that stuff apart. And there's, there's so many different types of styles of running you know, you have these inside zones, outside zones, kind of powers and counters, goal line stuff. Uh, so you had to kind of understand all the, all those things uh, to be able to understand, hey, what works? You know, what is effective run defense or what is effective blocking given that, given the scheme? Uh, so, yeah, it was, I would say it was the most challenging project I've ever had to work on, especially in terms of like NGS or tracking, tracking data type stuff, just because of the, the chaotic nature and complexity of the running game. You mentioned talking to, uh, you know, coaches, analysts, scouts, whatever. I assume they help kind of just kind of explain maybe the the purpose or the you know, geometry, the function of a lot of these different schemes that you're seeing. Yeah, mostly what we were, you know, what would you call this? What would you call that? It helped provide a, kind of a general foundation of kind of the, the overall approach to run defense and as far as like run fits and who's responsible for contain and who's responsible for the alley, uh, you know, one gap versus two gap type systems, uh, that sort of thing. So just kind of fun, especially fundamental understanding. Um, yeah, I mean, I played defensive end in a, in a five, two <laughs> back in the day. And, uh, you know, I had, I had one thing to do on every play and it was just contain over and over and over. So I didn't pay attention to what all the, the defensive tackles right. and the linebackers were supposed to do. I just contained. Um, so, uh, yeah, I had to re- relearn all that fun stuff. Um, I don't share the, you know, the, the jargon that a lot of these football coaches do, but it's, it's not terribly hard to understand. I mean, it, you know, you, you watch it enough and you, and you learn, you read and you talk to people and, and I feel like I have a fairly, you know, fundamental grasp of, of what's really important. How do you know when to stop tinkering with something? You talked about all the different factors you had to play with and, and figure out what's important and what's not. How do you know uh, when it's done or at least done enough that you can <laughs> publish it? Things along those lines. Yeah. When we're out of time, we're out of time when the season's about yeah. to start, that's when we stop. And we, we tested it along the way to make sure that, um, you know, it's, it was giving meaningful results. So on a play, you know, if a defender gets a run stop win, if he kind of wins his block, he can win his block mm-hmm. in three ways. He can, or four ways, really. I think he can 
control his gap. He can disrupt the backfield. He can force a contain, or he can make a tackle within three yards, get credited for the tackle within three yards, which is a way to kind of, it's kind of a catch all. Like if you're still geometrically blocked where there's a blocker between you and and the runner, but you're able to stick out your arm and and pull him down or or grab an ankle or whatever, uh, we consider that effective. So uh, that's how that works. And so there's a, there's a number of run stop wins on, on every run. So there could be zero to eight was the most we saw. And so the, yeah, the, the, if the model's any good, what we should see is that when you have zero run stop wins, it sh- you should have a pretty big gain. And when you have one run stop win on the play, you still have a fairly good gain, but but not as long. Two run stop wins, sh- shorter gain, and so on. And that's what we we saw. We saw from zero run stop wins, the average gain was was over you know almost eight yards on the play, and. Um, you know, with, with one run stop win, it was almost six, um, with two, it was like three yard gain on average. So we knew we're like, when we saw that result, when I saw that result, I was relieved because I was like, (laughs) okay, all this work wasn't for nothing. We're really capturing effectiveness. Um, so, and if you have a whole bunch of run stop wins on the play, it's kind of a jailbreak type thing and it's, it's going to be a loss. And, And so it was like, monotonically decreasing just as we would expect. Uh, so it was, it was, I was so happy. Uh, you can, <laughs> you can hear it in my voice now. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the other thing we did was we measured kind of uh, reliability. So we measured the statistics correlation from year to year, uh, player by player and, and within, okay. within position group. And it was really great. It was about as good as you're, you're going to see any statistic in sports. So it was even better than the pass, uh, the pass rates actually. We were, we we're surprised we did the same thing with the pass rates and on the blocker side, the pass blocker reliability is, was not as high as we had expected, but, um, which tells you something about what's relatively important in terms of pass rushing. It's mostly about, about the pass rusher, not so much about the, the pass blocker, but that's what that suggests. But anyway, some really interesting stuff is, um, could come out of that. So we're relieved, pleasantly relieved, and, and uh, it, it's really going to be effective. How do you feel? You mentioned being relieved. How do you feel when you're about to release something into the wild? You know, so it was you know last week, I think Tuesday morning, like you're pressing publish yeah. these articles <laughs> and uh, you're sending the tweets and whatever, and you know the feedback's coming. Just what's your general feeling as you're about to release something out there uh, that people haven't seen exactly like this before? Yeah. Well, when I, I keep saying we, I mean that. So it's a big team of, of people or a small team of people. So Hank Arjulo, Marty Callahan have been really instrumental in making sure that we cross the T's and dot the I's. And in fact, so since we released on Tuesday, we found two critically bad errors in, in, in the algorithm. Uh, we were letting some kneel downs through. That shouldn't have been counted, and then some of the, the the code that figures out who the primary blocker was, was wasn't working in some cases. So um, Marty is the, the one that kind of figures that stuff out. He he plays with with your software, True Media um, right. dashboard, and as he's building these things out, he's checking every single button and filter and switch and dial. It's like, hey, wait, there are too many unblocked plays. We've got. You know, is that supposed to be right, Brian? And I'm like, oh gosh, we got to fix that. So it's not going to change the numbers greatly, but uh, that's mm-hmm. what's going through our heads is like, oh gosh, did, did, did we let something through that? And so when you 
when you release something like this into the wild is when you really get your first testing, like full fledged mm-hmm. real world kind of testing feedback. And, and so we just want to make sure everything makes sense. Everything works. We haven't made a mistake. Um, we know eventually it's, it's going to be accepted and, and because we know it's, it's a good metric. Um, so we're not too worried about that, but, um, in some cases, uh, some cases we get some pushback. There's always, there's always that crowd, but, um, I was very excited. I, I was looking forward to Tuesday for, for a while actually, cause I'm, I'm really thrilled about this metric. Nice. Uh, Bill James said something like when you're putting together a new stat or a metric, you want maybe one in five results to kind of be surprising. Uh, <laughs> and so f- for you and the analytics team, that one headline was Aaron Donald being relatively average at stopping the run according to this metrics. Before we get into the details of why that is, what was the process like as you built the metrics? And you see he's showing up in the middle of the pack, you know, so yeah. you're raising an eyebrow trying to figure it out. What was that process like uh, in developing the metrics and confirming it was telling you what you wanted, et cetera? Well, early on in the process, he wasn't even coming up in the middle of the pack. He was kind of coming up below average. And one, one of the reasons we, we added a disruption win is because of what he does. That's his game. He mm-hmm. just disrupts the backfield. And so the, the whole idea of the metric is to capture how a defender can be effective in the running game without necessarily being the guy that makes the tackle. You know, does he right. fill his gap? Does he force the guy? Did, you know, does he make the spill? Yeah. So Aaron Donald was a big part of the narrative along the way because, you know, when you do like a team ranking metric, for example, you go back and you're like, okay, how did the 2007 Patriots do? Like they should be coming up on top in, in terms of offense. So likewise, what we would do is say, um, you know, where does Aaron Donald show up? Because you know he's the all-world best defensive tackle to ever live, right? So right. he's got to come up near the top. That's how you would kind of informally validate the model. And no, nothing seemed to actually make him any any better than than average. Um, so we dug a little deeper. And the more we dug, both statistically and on film, the more we – more confidence we gained that he, he really isn't very super effective in the run game. So what are those reasons? I mean, we see lots of clips. You see him <clears throat> online and whatnot. He's getting deep in the backfield, blowing up run plays. Those are the highlight reel plays, et cetera, et yeah, cetera. So yeah. what are the reasons for Donald being middle of the pack in this metric? Yeah. So he does, he makes spectacularly, like visually spectacular plays in the run game. Well, first off, let me say our, our pass rush metric has him off the chart number one by a mile. Right. Right. So if you want to criticize our approach on the basis of Aaron Donald, like, right. Yeah, pick, no, pick it's your, important. You're not saying yeah. he's terrible. You're even if you're whatever average at this yeah. at run stopping and the best pass rusher in the world, that makes for, you know, probably the, the best, best yeah, defensive yeah. player there is in football. So let's right. start there. There's, right. There's a trade off involved. I, I, we'll probably talk about that more. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the narrative goes like I had this statistic it was actually based on a B- old Bill James statistic. So Bill James had this statistic in baseball called range factor. Mm-hmm. And range factor was like just an average shortstop should have, let's say, 20% of the putouts on, on a team right? Uh, on average. But let's say Ozzie Smith, he has 30%. So tackle factor would be like 30 divided by 20. His a range factor rather would be 1.5. Yep. So I said, well, let's make a tackle factor, right? Because there, there are just teams, you can't just look at the total number of tackles, let's say a middle linebacker makes, because he may be on a bad team that lets uh, long drives occur. So he's just naturally having more opportunities at tackles. Mm-hmm. You know, the best defense in the world would be three and out every time, and, and it, there wouldn't be a lot of opportunities. So tackle factor worked that way. So if you look at his run tackle factor, it's abysmally low. 
<laughs> it is a uh, 9%, whereas you would expect a defensive tackle to, you know, to be around, you know, 14% maybe. And the very, very best defensive tackles are kind of pushing close to 20%. And he ranked, I think I have this right, 138th or 39th out of 150 qualifying uh, interior linemen in terms mm-hmm. of that uh, statistic, in terms of percent number of plays where he gets he gets credited with a tackle. That is just amazing. Like you just, you mm-hmm. can understand that, hey, the whole point of the statistic is you can affect the run game without making the tackle. But if you are an elite three technique, four, three defensive tackle, you should be gobbling up tackles, play after play after play. I mean, Donald last year averaged one tackle per half of football, if you can imagine that in, mm-hmm. in the running game. Right. Uh, so we're like, well, there's something to, okay, there's some merit to to the case that maybe he's doing something really different than other defensive tackles. He, we know he's really good. We know he's really fast. What is he doing? And so, you know, one one of the other things is Paul Saban. I know his previous guest on your show. Paul's yep. been working on a um, like a Bayesian plus minus model for okay. um, we have we have it for college. He's exporting it to pros, and if you look at just his raw on-off splits, Donald, like when he's on the field versus off the field in the run game, the Rams are actually slightly better when he's not on the field against the run. Hmm. And in, in Paul's metric as well, plus minus, it shows the same thing. In fact, he found that result before we even finished our, our win rate metric. So, so we're like, okay, that's even more evidence. So we have, so we have the, the, the run metric, the run stop win rate, we've got the, the tackle factor thing, we've got his on-off splits, and we've got the plus minus thing. And so we're like, well, what's going on? We gotta watch watch the film on him. And so basically, what he does is he plays pass, even on rundowns. And that may be the smart thing to do. I think it is. I um, yeah. I'll be the first to tell you why the passing game is more important than the running game in the pros. And that may be the optimum thing to do, especially given his his particular attributes. You know, super fast, not really very big though. And so right. so his style of play is where he he will shoot the gap in front of him, which is what's called the B gap, which is in in between the offensive guard and the tackle. And he he gets off the line so much faster than every other player that he's able to just shoot that gap. Now, if you're a play charter, you're looking at that and you say, oh, okay, he he, he controlled that gap, you know, so he gets a plus on that play or whatever. Mm -hmm. But in terms of a actual practical effectiveness versus the run it's it's not effective at all what he does is he shoots through there so fast and he has right for the quarterback even on first and tens and running situations heads right for the quarterback ignores the runner it's very easy for the guard to just kind of carry him along into the backfield so he'll get you know three four five yards deep into the backfield and unless the run play is just right let's say it's a stretch run in his direction or some other kind of slow developing handoff um he's able he'll make you know that blow up tackle where he just completely disrupts the play and you know the the highlight you see the highlight reel right Um, yeah yeah. but unless that combination of events occurs he's completely taking himself out of the play and what that does is it opens up instead of him clogging the b gap what he does is deletes the b gap so now there's this giant gap between the a and the c gaps so there's this four or five yard wide gap at the line of scrimmage, whereas you know if the, the running back can get through it, he's going to be off to the races, and that happens over and over and over. 
Um, now I think it's strategically pretty brilliant, mm -hmm. but, and then when he stays home, the problem is if he doesn't do that, if he plays more conventionally, he, he gets pushed around. So if he's not using his speed, um, he, he's an undersized defensive tackle. And so he, he'll get pushed around, especially if there's a double team, he'll get pushed into the second level, which is really bad, or he's just not a factor in the play. So mm. he's not particularly effective on the goal line either. Cause he just doesn't have, doesn't have the size. So all in all, the headline, and we don't write the headlines, the editors do. <laughs> <laughs> right. Blame the editors. That's right. And nobody reads the article. We look at it, we can look at you know, like how many people I, I think I have have more replies on Twitter from Tuesday than <laughs> than people who got through the whole article. People who even clicked on the article once. <laughs> um so well, well, it, let me let's address some of those issues that I think probably spring to anybody's mind. And I'm sure you thought through all of these and uh, I know you've answered some of these questions already. So let's just start with uh, the disruption factor because you're saying he gets up field almost every play. So there's got to be some sort of value in that, whether uh, it's in the scheme or, or what he's doing. How does that kind of work itself into the metric and, and what you're analyzing? Yeah, it's a little difficult. So we can pull that out like, okay, how many disruption wins did he have versus how many tackle wins did he have? Or how many, you know, block wins did he have? Things like mm -hmm. that. Um, we can we can pull that out. But it, you know, when I built the metric, I, I wasn't thinking ahead so much about the situation. So it really only captures a, a disruption will really only happen, will capture that when he makes, when he disrupts the backfield without actually beating the block. And he usually, he, he will beat the block in the backfield. Right. So if we just kind of sort players by disruptions, it, it doesn't quite work. Um, but he takes himself out of the play so much and he, he does get pushed around quite a bit that his ability to disrupt the backfield is what kind of brings him up from, you know, like I said, with a, with a tackle factor thing, the, t the tackle percentage, that he's a bottom of the league in that. So his ability to to disrupt runs in other ways, getting into the backfield, et cetera, is what brings him up to at least average. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure we're under, you know, we looked at other things. So his wins are slightly more valuable than other Rams defensive or interior line wins. So when he wins, it, it um, the average gain for – a run play is about half yard less than when another interior lineman from the Rams has a win. Because his so, wins are generally getting him further into the backfield. Yeah, yeah. just because right. that's his okay. style of play, yeah. And that's what we would expect, that we understand mm -hmm. that. And, and part of our metric is a thing we call pushback, where all we're doing is measuring kind of that, that um, war in the trenches. So how far does a de defensive tackle able to penetrate across the line of scrimmage compared to how far does he get pushed back behind the line of scrimmage. And so we just measure that. And for interior linemen, it makes a lot of sense. The edge players, not as much because they're, they're penetrating a lot more. But uh, for the interior linemen, you know, we, we sort those players. And, and Donald comes up, um, you know, right, right at the top of that list. Um, but but it's, not, it's not necessarily effective against the run. And there right. are, I, you know, since Tuesday, we got this pushback. I went through mm -hmm. and I, I watched um, all his film from 2019. And, uh, I made a gif of about 40 plays where he did exactly that. He just opened up giant hole was totally ineffective against the, mm. the run. And so, um, I'm armed and ready on Twitter <laughs> for the <laughs> next battle. I was hoping something. So, so last night was Sunday night football and he right. was on, he was on against the Cowboys and I knew, God, he's going to make this 
spectacular oh, yeah. run stop and I'm just going to get it from all directions. But he was pretty quiet. He, he had one sack. We, I mean, and we love him in the past game and that's kind of what's going on. And we thought he had a very good, actually he, um, one of his best games against the run. We, he had a very solid, like our run stop win rate on him was, was pretty high. It was like 60, you know, 70%, something like that, which is really high actually. How do, how do the double teams factor into this? Because one of my first reactions, and I know you've got this a lot, is that, hey, he gets double teamed all the time. Of course he's not winning. How does that factor into what you're measuring? Yeah. Uh, so Seth Walter, our colleague, he looked at that in terms of does he get double teamed all the time? People just assume that. And that's true in the passing game. Uh, he gets do- it's all, He's off the charts, double teamed all the time. But the whole idea of being a three technique tackle is it makes it's very very difficult to to double team uh, three technique in the in the running game because of where where he lines up. You know he he's on the outside shoulder of the guard, which means that the center really has to reach really far to be able to get to him. And the, the tackle is in between the guard and the tackle, so the tackle could double team him. But then what happens with the defensive end? So right. he gets double teamed just slightly more than average as we define double teams and double teams include uh, combo blocks. Um, okay. And the other thing was, do teams run away from him? Right. Mm-hmm. That maybe that's why he's doesn't show up as effective because he's just not, not a part of the play. Um, but that's not true either. Team teams are just as likely to run in his direction as not. I think they should be doing a lot more at it. If I were an offensive coordinator, I'd run at him all day long. So one of the other things, this goes for almost any football metric that we hear is that we as analysts don't know what a guy's responsibilities are. You know, I, I know you dealt with this a lot uh, when you're looking at pass coverage and stuff, especially, you know, is, is it man versus zone versus whatever? Uh, is that actually his area? Things like that. How, how do you respond to that when people are saying, you know, maybe he's supposed to be getting into the backfield and, yeah. and just doing his thing? What's the response to that? Well, that could be, and that's what we're saying. We think this is, you know, a st- deliberate strategy where he's going after the court, he's assuming play action, going for the quarterback, and he has license to do that. But we're, 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 and we don't know intent. We never really will. Um, on most plays though, you know, it, it's, it's, a, oh, okay, this is a, you know, this is a power run. Uh, the left guard is pulling to the right. Okay. There's a fullback who's going to do a lead block. He's supposed to get a linebacker. Yeah. So it, it's, a lot of times, you know, but it's pretty obvious. What we're measuring though is, is execution. We know we're never really going to be able to measure intent. Um, right. at, at least at this stage in terms of the player tracking data. Now, watching a, an experienced coach, you know, scout or whatever can do it a lot better if they're watching film. You can take that into account. So fully accept the fact that that's going to be a drawback with the, with this yeah. kind of system. But we are mercilessly objective in terms of <laughs> measuring effect, effectiveness and execution. And so we just, you know, we, we assume that, especially at the pro level, people talk about misassignments and stuff all the time. But, you know, this isn't high school um, or, or even college. They, there are some, you, you can tell, but they're, they're fairly rare. And um, in any case, we're just measuring how well you execute those blocks and, and not trying to guess intent. Right. Any other responses that you want to get out there to what's criticism you've received <laughs> or other reaction uh, that you've got? Anything else you want to kind of defend yourself, if you will? You know, what I've learned is there's a lot of people out there that they claim they, they're like film watchers and scouters and charters, and they're not. <laughs> they're not. If they were, they, they'd be 
they'd be like, yeah, you know what? And a, a few guys did reach out to me privately and they're like, mm-hmm. Hey, I noticed the same thing last year, but I was scared to say anything. Cause I knew people would jump <laughs> all over me. And so that was good to see. But yeah, there's a, uh, people who claim to be, you know, your, your middle school gym teacher guy, you know, is coaching, um, you know, the JV squad up the street or whatever, they'll claim to be at this level of expertise where maybe they, maybe they are, but they're not really watching the film and evaluating Aaron Donald's 300 run snaps last year. (laughs) So you've got this, uh, run stopping, run blocking metrics. You've got the pass rushing, pass blocking metrics. Is there a, you know, next step at maybe putting these together and, you know, some even larger perspective line metrics, something like that, or what's yeah, next well, there? These metrics are, you know, you can all, you roll them up at the team level as well mm-hmm. as the player level. But, um, you know, the real value is that, that, you know, for the very first time we have these objective statistics for, for linemen, which we never had before. I mean, right. it was like sacks allowed or something. I mean, it's just really yeah. dumb stuff. And so, um, you know, that alone, we're really happy with, um, but yeah, we're going to, the next, next thing with this in particular is kind of run play classification. So we'll be able to classify and basically label the play. And Mm -hmm. I already, I still worked on that a bit over the summer already. Um, but it just wasn't going to be ready for the season. Um, but it was really, it's a really fun, um, task. The, the running game is really interesting. Um, I can understand why coaches kind of have this kind of loyalty to it, misplaced loyalty to it, because it's really interesting for them to design these plays and, you know, game plan against opponents. So I, I had to like create my own kind of system like uh Zampezi or, you know, Kubiak system or what, you know, Shanahan system or something. So I had to create my own verbiage for what this play is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, you know, it's basically almost like I'm kind of designing a, my own offense, just have words for it. You know, you're spider Y banana kind of thing. Like I had to come yeah. up with words for what this is or what that, that is, um, to be able to classify these plays. So that, it's a really fun task. Um, so we're identifying types of blocks as well. So hey, this is a trap. This is a wham. This is, this is a reach block. This is down block. And so I think we'll be able to learn even more. Um, at some point we'll, build some sort of adjusted metric. We don't want to overwhelm people with like regressions and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Right out of the gate. Yeah. So like we'll account for, are you double teamed? Who are you blocking? Who is your blocker? You know, what kind of play is it? What kind of, you know, what's the game situation? Was there play action and things like that, where we can account for some factors that, that we we would expect to affect um, run stop win rate or run block win rate and, and have like uh, something that's a, a little more advanced um, but that's down the road. What is an NFL Sunday like for you? Are these visions of, you know, nerds with screens and spreadsheets frantically analyzing every single thing that happens and decisions that are made or whatever. Well, what is your uh, <laughs> typical NFL Sunday like? I mean, you're working, doing yeah. ESPN work. What is it? Just kind of walk us through that day for you, please. Yeah, Sunday is Sunday's a work day. And um, if, if watching football constitutes right. work, <laughs> yeah. I've got three screens usually going. Mm-hmm. Um, red zone is one. And if the Ravens are playing, they're on the main screen. Okay. Uh, otherwise, That's it's the home team. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm a Baltimore kid, so I, usually I'll I'll switch over sort of my football mentality by by four o'clock. So when the Ravens game is over, I'm I'm no longer like this insane fan screaming at the, the refs. <laughs> you know? And then four o'clock hits, and now I'm analytical, Brian. And uh, usually there's nothing 
you know, unless there's some super interesting, like fourth down to analyze or something, there's not a lot going on in the one o'clock games. So Hank Garjulo and I will work together to make sure all kind of our live metrics are kind of running. And, and we, we have those, I have this, um, giant dashboard. I look at on my computer, which has all the win probability graphs from all the, the games concurrent. Uh, we're tracking the fourth downs. We're tracking um, kind of the biggest plays. Um, so we can kind of feed that to our, our content uh, researchers so they can you know pump that out to our writers and on-air analysts and those sorts of things. So that's usually what I'm, what I'm doing. We're looking for uh, we're looking for interesting plays to analyze. We're looking for, you know, big comebacks, um, you know, super exciting games, something unique uh, to provide content. So we're, we're usually watching for that. Otherwise, I'm just kind of just staying in touch with what's going on in the league. So I got to ask one specific question about Sunday's game, maybe the most eyebrow raising play, at least the Cowboys going forward on fourth and three yeah. uh, late in the game. when They could have kicked the field goal that would have tied it. And yeah. they were, I think, inside the 10. Uh, what, what are your... What's your take on that? What did your model suggest there as far as that decision? It was from the 11, actually. And okay. so our model was right at the point of indifference on that, actually. Okay. And we ran it right there on the spot. And it was um, it favored the field goal ever so slightly, um, which is funny because all today on our air on ESPN has been, you know, like Rex Ryan is like, oh, I, I think his, I'll quote him. He said, golly, I hate analytics because he's the anal <laughs> analytics say to go for it every time. And actually, you know, we, we said, you know, if you went straight by the numbers, our, our model said, hey, kick the field goal there. Um, three yards is, is kind of tough there in that region just because the field is compressed. And there's some, yeah. you know, some other things to keep in mind. So the, the big mistake, though, was the Rams uh, fourth and one around midfield um, with right. like two minutes right after change. that. Yeah. yeah, that was a big mistake. Um, but, yeah, we were, the models were quite indifferent. So I, don't, I wouldn't you know, when the model is kind of indifferent like that, the decision needs mm -hmm. to come down to sort of models that are exogenous, uh, to use a fancy <laughs> word, where, you know, the weather, you know, how's your kicker? You know, how do you have a good play you think will work? Uh, things like that. Yeah. We could probably spend the whole podcast talking about how you got to sports analytics in the first place, but I have to at least ask kind of one question. So you had the unusual career path of attending the Naval Academy, flying F-18s, and how did you get from that to sports analytics world now? Well, when I got into it, there was no sports analytics world. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe some of the things I'm going to tell you are going to sound kind of arrogant. Uh, but that's okay. I was a single seat Naval aviator, so we, we, right. we kind of run It comes with the territory, right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The big watch and, uh -huh. and the ego. Yeah. So I, I got out of the Navy in early 2005 and uh, moved to Northern Virginia. And I was recruited here to, to do some government work stuff. And um, when you're in the Navy, it just occupies your entire day. It really, right. it, there's not a lot of time for like hobbies or golf or whatever. Um, <laughs> so when I got out of the Navy, I, had, I was like, what do I do with this time? And the other thing is the Navy, one of my things I did in the Navy, they sent me to graduate school and they taught us a whole bunch of multivariate statistics. And I, I took, the, you know, I did well with it. I understood it all. And I'm like, I will never, ever use this for anything. Like this is <laughs> just a waste of everybody's time. But then I remember I was talking to a colleague of mine and we we're like at the water cooler type conversation talking about defense wins championships. Does it really? People say so, but does it? And we're going around in circles and I'm like, you know, this conversation has been going on for generations. I was like, you know what? All this data is online now. And I got this uh, 
regression software left over from grad school, we could, we could answer this question by the end of lunch. And, uh, that that's literally how it started. I got into it. I, I just caught the bug. I'm like, wow. Okay. So, you know, want to be able to answer the question, you kind of had to build this kind of overall model of football. And once you had this model, you could do a lot of things with it. You could, you could mm-hmm. compare like the relative importance of various facets of the game, like passing and running or offense and defense, or make predictions about who's going to win the next game. And so that I was like, wow, you can do all kinds of stuff. And then, Hey, you can run a simulate a season simulation, figure out who's going to be in the playoffs. And these were all unanswered things back then. It was just Mm -hmm. a bunch of kind of ex players on TV, just kind of pulling things out of their butt. And, and, um, (laughs) you know, people were like, the running game is preeminent. Uh, in the last 12, 15 years has really been a sea change in just the way we think about football. Um, and, and analytics are a big part of that. Now, analytics wasn't even a word in 2006 when I started this. Mm-hmm. If you literally go back to an old version of like word, type in analytics, it'll be like, did you mean analysis? <laughs> Redline. Yeah. Clippy will pop up. And, <laughs> right. So I was completely ignorant of like sabermetrics in baseball. And I eventually caught on to that. And I, I realized like there were a bunch of baseball people who were trying to break into football. They're like, hey, we did this great thing. You know, we got this money ball book. Let's do the same thing for football. And they took this cookie cutter that they applied to baseball and tried to put it on football. But football is a completely different type of sport. Right. And I came at it without, with sort of ignorance of sabermetrics, which actually I think gave me an advantage because I had this open mind about it. I had this military mindset too, which I think football is, is very martial land acquisition, right. you know, combat sport. <laughs> uh-huh. And so and it's, and game theory is a very big part of it. And so, you know, air combat as well, there's a lot of game theory involved. I, I think that those all played into things. So once I started doing this, I was making game predictions every week and I emailed them out to friends and my family members and things. And it would say, you know, stop spamming us with your stupid you know, <laughs> game for it. We don't care. <laughs> I said, yeah, but I'm like, you know, I was 14 and one last week. And so, um, <laughs> so I, I started a, a website, just a blog basically, and yep. just posted them there. So that way people, if they were interested, they could come to it instead of me pushing it out to them. And then people started coming to the website and I started adding things to it and adding things to it. I really caught the bug. So between 2006 and 2008, um, I did a lot of interesting things, but then 2008 was a total watershed year, um, where I, I realized like, to really do anything meaningful, we need a large database of play-by-play level data, uh, which was actually hard to get at the time. And I was able to get it. And that, that was a huge watershed moment. So we like to wrap things up with our plain favorites segment where we were through a number of your favorites, just to get to know you a little bit. So we'll start with what is your favorite number and why? 93. I was class of 93 at Annapolis. Uh, your favorite player when you were a kid? It could be any sport. When I was a really little kid, just to keep things on football, Burt Jones. Wow. Okay. Um, before the injury. Back in yeah. The day. yeah. Before the injury. He was really, really good. And, and he had a, I think it was MVP one season, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Like 76 or 77. He, he yeah, had a shoulder like injury. And if we had modern medical technology, he'd still be playing. Mm. He's, he's, yeah. He was really good. Um, and then, but as older kid, uh, Cal Ripken, no doubt. Um, as a Baltimore guy, right? Yeah. You have a favorite moment from an Army Navy game? Yeah, it might not be what you expect. First of all, I don't want anyone to think I played football at Navy. Um, right. I did not. Uh, <laughs> I, I maxed out at um, you know second string defensive end or 
in Towson High. Okay, so I took my son when he was, let's say, 11 or 12 to a game in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And um, it was brutally cold and it was snowing and then it turned into rain. It was just so miserable. Ugh. And I'm like, let, like Navy was, was killing Army. And I was like, hey, like, you want to go? And he's like, no, I want to see the whole thing. I was like, hey, you know what we should do? Let's. We were up in the upper deck. I was like, let's go down to where the brigade is sitting. And let's walk, let's see if we can kind of sneak in there with the brigade and just so my son can kind of like feel what it's like inside the brigade because they're just yelling and cheering and it, the, the spirit is just unmatched. And so I brought him down there. So we're down like right on the field level inside the brigade and we're, we're watching the, the play is happening like right in front of us and we're right on the field level. And it was amazing to see. So the score might've been like 35 to six or something. And it was the fourth quarter. And what I noticed was the army players were just giving a thousand percent just you could see the expressions on their faces you could you knew that they're they're defeated on the scoreboard but these cadets were like going all out a hundred percent just giving everything even though it just wasn't going to matter and it was just a great opportunity to kind of show my son i was like yeah i mean i'm a, I'm a navy fan obviously but um right take a look at these army guys that's that's how it's done and they, you know you fight until the fight's over, you just, you fight to win the next play. And, and so it was a great, it was a great moment uh, to have with my son. Very cool. Favorite moment as a Navy pilot, at least that you can tell us about. All right. I'll tell you a really nerdy story. It, it, okay. Maybe not my proudest moment, but my, just cause this is an analytics oriented. So we had this big exercise up at a place called Fallon, Nevada. It was our air wing mm-hmm. uh, training exercise, bef- which we do before our deployments and it's the whole air wing. So it's all the different kinds of jets. So F-18s, F-14s, S-3s, Prowlers, all these different. So we had this one exercise, kind of this long, long war game with kind of this narrative and where you kind of try to fight and win this this war, this limited war. And one of the exercises I was on was one of the missions was what we call close air support. And close air support is we, you know, we've got some bombs and, we generally have sort of air superiority. We don't have to worry about enemy fighters and stuff like that. So there's a bunch of Marines on the ground or SEALs on the ground or something, and their enemies closing in on them, and we have to go drop a bomb on, on the enemy. And what they do is they give us a what we call a nine line, which is like a list of latitude, longitude, elevation of the target, description, which way to roll in on the target, things like that. And they Oh, and time on target was one of the most important things because it's got to be right on time because a lot of other things are synchronized with that. Right. So um, what I realized though, is part of the pre-mission briefing was like, there was this supposed to be this notional surface to air uh, threat where if you flew past this certain line on a map, you were like automatically shot down. They would say shot down in this war game narrative. And where the Marines wanted me to go was past that line. And so it was kind of like this no win kind of scenario where I think the right answer was to, um, you know, radio back and say, Hey, we can't do it. You know, send in something else, like shoot a bunch of tomahawks in there or something like that was going to be the right answer in the scenario. But I was, (laughs) I threw back to, you know, like seventh grade algebra. I'm like, well, all these bombs are, it's all kinetics, right? It's, it's it's all parabolas. And, um, (laughs) What I had, the weapon I had was this thing called a laser guided training round. This is a laser guided bomb. And what you do is you, you drop it towards the target and then the Marines or whoever, they have this like laser rifle 
and they will illuminate the target with the laser beam and then the bomb homes in on that. So I don't even have to, I don't have to worry about exactly where the target is. I said, well, you know, if this final have to be super accurate, you know, how, how many solutions are there to a parabola, right? Imagine like an upside down inverted yeah. parabola, right? And you're going to find the roots. There's two roots. And so, you know, one of those roots involves like, you know, coming down the chute and just kind of dive bombing and releasing them. But then one of them involves climbing from really, really, really far away. And I'm like, I wonder how far away that is. <laughs> Maybe I can lob this thing and stay behind this line. And uh, that's what I ended up doing. So I came in as low and as fast as I possibly could. And I, I used my, my targeting systems to know where to release the bomb and I pulled up, released the bomb and it worked. <laughs> it hit the target. It broke the war game. I broke the war game. And they're like, you weren't supposed to do that. And I got in trouble a little bit because they're like, yeah, th th that kind of weapon, you're not cleared to release a weapon in, you know, with that tactic or whatever. I'm like, we are now. Like it got tested. It works. So um, that was my, my, one of my favorite, I guess, analytical moments in, in my career. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you pilots, nothing but trouble. But uh, <laughs> way, just a favorite, how did I get here moment in your analytics career? Where, you know, you just kind of like, wow, this is taking me some crazy places and you're able to kind of soak in a moment of uh, you know, just appreciation there. Yeah, the very first time a team reached out to me and said, "Hey, we want you to, you know, do some work for us." That was, even though I was writing for the New York Times and I was had, had a slight, you know, small following, actual team really caring and figuring out who I was and finding me, and that was that was kind of a that was a stunning moment. I was like, "Wow!" Like I just went from a guy on his couch to like, "Hey." Brian, what do you think we should do here? So that was that was amazing. Yeah, very cool. All right. Well, that'll wrap things up for us here on this episode. Brian Burke, ESPN Senior Analytics Specialist. Thanks for joining us here on Expected Value and Go Navy. <laughs> Thanks again to Brian Burke, Senior Analytics Specialist at ESPN, for joining us on the show. Follow him on Twitter at bburke, B-U-R-K-E, ESPN. And check our show notes for the links to articles that he and Seth Walder of the analytics team have written, explaining more details about ESPN's new run blocking metrics. I'm joined now by True Media Senior Director of Analytics, Albert Larcata, who was on ESPN's analytics team prior to Brian Burke joining that team. Albert did a lot of similar work developing models and such at ESPN. He does the same kinds of things here at True Media as well. Albert, I think I'm most interested in your take on the process, building, validating these metrics. What did you think of how Brian and the team went about that? Right. So, yeah, it was interesting. I was, uh, I've obviously been in tune with this uh, Aaron Donald battle going back and forth. And I mean, I, I have no skin in the game. I was 50 50 on the charters versus uh, Brian's work. I know Brian's a very sharp guy, though. So I, I have to say, though, he convinced me on the pod. There were mm -hmm. a few things he mentioned that are sort of telltale signs of a good model. So one was do basic stats, sort of like the more generic, uh, you know, box score, play-by-play -play driven stats. Is there a stat that sort of backs up the advanced numbers, which in this case it does. He, he mentioned the Aaron Donald example of having an incredibly low tackle rate. Uh, for interior linemen, like 9% or something, which is well below what normal interior linemen get uh, per rush play. Right. Um, so that's a good thing. Obviously, that alone doesn't mean it's a good model, but that's a good checkpoint. The second thing was 
does the metric correlate to things that matter effectively? And so his example of the more uh, rush wins that the interior lineman gets, the yards and success rate of the rushes go down. I think his numbers were something like at zero rush wins, the average yards per rush is like nine. As you Mm -hmm. get one rush win, it goes to six. As you get two, it goes to four, et cetera, et cetera. So that's obviously a very good sign as well. Um, It's basically just saying that your model's calibrated well. It's it's sort of doing what you'd expect it to do. Um, So that is a good sign. Uh, And then the third thing was, is the metric consistent? So are you tapping into something that's a skill and not random? And the year-to-year correlation numbers that I think Seth is the one who put it in his articles were incredibly high. I mean, they were like 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6. I think one of them was 0. 0.7, one of the position groups, which is just absurd for a football metric. It, to me, ticking those three boxes sort of puts the, 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 the pressure on the other side to, okay, so those three things are true. What else is he missing? Or what else are the charters doing that this metric is still not getting? I've never done this, but I'd be interested to know is, are there other stats out there that back up the charting side of this? Like, do do the grades sort of correlate to things that matter? Like, you know, mm-hmm. is the when Donald gets a, a sort of positive grade, does that mean that the opponent's team success goes down um, and vice versa? So again, I don't think it proves anything, but I think his explanation, he articulated it really well. He kind of made me a believer with the way he laid out the reasons why he stands very behind the, the model he built. Yeah, and it's good that I mean this goes for any model that you're able to explain things relatively simply. You know, just as simple as saying, "Look, he doesn't get a lot of tackles," so that's kind of one sign. I mean, I remember when we were unveiling like the Soccer Power Index at ESPN or QBR, pretty much pick any metric. Uh, when people raise an eyebrow at something. If you can explain it and say, look, his QBR was really good because he ran for three first downs on third down, and those had a big factor. If you can say that, or it's really bad because he threw an interception on first and goal, and that just kills you from a QBR standpoint. Uh, if you can explain that just in lay language, I think that that goes a lot. It goes a long way, rather, toward having people be believers because... Uh, you know, people like where I was at ESPN, and then even that next level of producers or talent or writers, if they can't explain it and understand it at some level, then, you know, you're just not going to get a bunch of traction. And the fact that, you know, someone like Seth was able to easily take this and kind of walk people through stuff like that's, that's a good sign to me when you can take the complex stuff, make it relatively simple, easy to understand and find your good kind of examples or or stories that you're trying to tell out of it. Right. Right. Yeah. uh, Another thing Brian mentioned was that again, gives me a lot of confidence in what he's done is when uh, Marty, who's a friend of ours from ESPN, started to dig into the numbers, he he found a couple of weird things. Like I think Brian mentioned the kneel down thing. They were they mm-hmm. were counting uh, kneel downs as snaps, which obviously doesn't make sense. So whenever I hear someone build a model and then admit that, oh yeah, there's this edge case I forgot. Let me correct that, as, as opposed to trying to sort of talk it off. Like I oh, know this model's perfect. Don't worry about that. Just admitting mistakes is almost like does the opposite of, of what you think. It gives me more confidence that they're actually right. on to something. So I found that interesting too, that even after months and months of work, no doubt you're still going to find bugs in your code or you're going to find edge cases you didn't think about once more people get, get their eyes on it. So just admitting that 
that happens and it's fixable and it didn't change this according to what he said it didn't change the results very much but yeah just people who admit to mistakes like that give me a lot more confidence yeah it's like you see the perfect you know whatever it is the perfect person candidate quarterback whatever it is you have questions because you just feel like something has to be wrong and i feel like if someone put a metric out there like yeah it's perfect it explains everything whatever then you know, you almost just throw it away because you know it's too good to be true or, or something like that. Yeah, um, exactly. I, I also liked, he said, I just asked him, like, how do you know when it's ready? And he kind of said, it's because the season starts. It reminds me of, I want to say it was Lorne Michaels, the guy who oversees Saturday Night Live. He always said, like, we go on because it's 1130 on Saturday. We don't go on because we're ready. I mean, I felt that way when we did shows uh, at ESPN. Like, why is the sports center going on? Because it's six o'clock and it has to go on. Uh, you know, you always feel like you can do more. So I'm sure he's always thinks there's more to do and you know they'll probably make adjustments but yeah at some point you just have to like put it out in the wild and brace yourself for the feedback and and go with it so that's that's always a fun exciting kind of but some butterflies sort of moment that i thought you could hear the excitement uh in his voice as he kind of talked about that it was uh, it was a good thing all right thanks albert and thanks again to brian burke for joining us on the podcast uh, again, I encourage anyone interested in ESPN's new metrics to read the articles in our show notes. And for more conversations with ESPN's analytics team, check our archives for shows with Jeff Bennett, the VP who founded and oversees the analytics group, and Paul Sabin, who's developed several ESPN metrics for college football and other sports. Please follow us on Twitter at True Media Sports to keep up with the podcasts and other notes and articles that come from True Media's research tools and models, including our, how our expected points added model views every team after every week of the NFL season. On behalf of Albert Larcata and everyone here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thank you for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. Mm-hmm.